This is HR in Review, a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice, and all the latest developments in human resource management. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to our newest episode of our podcast, HR in Review. I'm Monica Sharma, the editor of HR Review, and if you haven't tuned in before, in this short segment, we'll be looking back at some recent standout stories, and we'll be discussing the most relevant topics linked to HR. Each week will be based around a different theme, and this week's is diversity and inclusion within the workplace. Here today, I'm joined by my guest, Suki Sandhu. Suki is founder and CEO of Involve, a global network and consultancy championing diversity and inclusion in business. Involve helps firms drive cultural change and create inclusive workplaces where any individual can succeed. Suki has received an OBE for services to diversity in business and is a Stonewall ambassador, patron for the Albert Kennedy Trust and board director of Outright Action International. Suki, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. No worries. It's a pleasure. So um, I just wanted to jump straight into our first story, which is actually research that your consultancy carried out. Um, This research was linked to language used about race in the workplace. One of the main statistics found that almost two thirds of working senior professionals, 65%, confess they are nervous about utilising the wrong language when it comes to discussing race at work. So just as an introduction, Suki, can you talk us through these stats in a bit more depth? Yeah, sure. Um, So our research engaged with 500 senior execs Mm -hmm. across several of the UK's largest employers. And much of the data outlined that talking about race in the workplace is still a significant barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, if we feel unable to talk about the issues, it's a serious barrier to tackling racism, racism mm-hmm. in the workplace head on. Mm-hmm. Um, only 27% of UK respondents felt comfortable using black as mm-hmm. a descriptor in the workplace, while under a quarter um, felt comfortable with using the term Asian or mixed race. Mm-hmm. This compares to 69% of people who are comfortable using the term white. Right. So there was even less comfort from respondents, actually, in using more general terms, such as ethnic minority, which was 19%, and personal mm-hmm. color, which was 15%, when talking about all two individuals in the workplace. Um, so we know from our research that business leaders feel uncomfortable and avoid talking about race at work because mm-hmm. they're worried about saying the wrong thing and causing offense. Mm-hmm. But as you as you and I both know, these important conversations were and remain stunted by the mm-hmm. lack of confidence that those in positions of power have using the language surrounding race. Mm-hmm. So if a white manager feels unable to say the word black or Asian within the workplace, mm-hmm. what hope is there that this manager will be vocal or even a necessary advocate and driving force for action for these mm-hmm. groups? Yeah, so definitely there's, as you've said, there's like a clear aversion there where senior professionals are really afraid of saying the wrong thing or using the wrong terms. And as you've mentioned, this is specifically um, kind of relevant when it comes to BAME employees. Um, Another statistic which I also found quite interesting within the research was that almost two-fifths of people um, surveyed stated that they've witnessed one or more than one instance of racism in the workplace over the last three years. And this was interesting to me specifically because it seems to offer a different narrative to the government's controversial Seawall report, which found that institutional racism does not exist in UK workplaces. So what were your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, this kind of statement seriously threatens progress in this arena as as important conversation, conversations are just stalled. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So rather than a call to action, the Sewell report, and I think it's how you, I think you say it's Sewell, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. it correctly, Monica, but the Sewell report acted as a stop to action. Mm-hmm. And this is also at a time when social justice movements such as Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. clearly show that inequality and racism is still embedded across mm-hmm. society. Right. So we therefore can't be complacent by pretending change isn't needed. Mm-hmm. So our research highlights that ignorance and racism are still very much present in society and clear policies and training are needed to, er- to eradicate it completely. Mm-hmm. I think even just jumping off that, um, you've said obviously there is a lot of racism still prevalent within UK workplaces. The study also showed that one in seven people who answered the survey believe that race and racism should not be discussed at work because they don't think it exists within the workplace. So as you've said, it really shows that there's more work to be done in order to really tackle this. Totally. There um, were clearly different different agendas and different outcomes for that report, mm-hmm. which has been very much discussed and di- dissected in the media. Mm-hmm. But to try and deny that institutional racism doesn't exist is almost offensive to the current climate and what's happening in the world, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, as you've mentioned, there's been a whole shift of um, social movements and really DNI has become a main focus of UK businesses since obviously last summer and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, So it was definitely a controversial report to be putting out there um, in a time where so many businesses are trying to make these strides. Exactly. Um, But as, as the research actually mentions involves research um over four-fifths of respondents did agree that they're educating themselves to understand what kind of language is the most appropriate to use when talking about um, race or referring to different ethnicities so that is kind of an encouraging side of the research so what would your advice to businesses um be who are really interested in opening the doors to more discussion about race how can this be achieved in a way that that kind of takes in the sensitive nature of the topic whilst also ensuring it's not just a checklist exercise. Follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Yeah, I mean, there's things like, um, I mean, clearly getting educated on the subject is really important. Mm-hmm. So leaders will ultimately lead by example or should mm-hmm. lead by example and should be the ones driving conversations about race within business. Mm -hmm. So it's important for leaders to work on getting up to speed with appropriate language Mm -hmm. so they can initiate these conversations. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, a year ago, we published an open letter in the Sunday Times where we now have over 80 CEOs that have signed it, Mm -hmm. all pledging to take action on black inclusion and race Mm -hmm. inclusion in business. So taking six actions. Um, And so they kind of need to be held accountable Mm-hmm. So um, being accountable and transparent about what you're doing and signing up to things like that does hold a mirror up to the organization mm-hmm. and gets them to actually take action. Right. Um, there's no reason why, for instance, they shouldn't introduce mandatory training. Mm-hmm. Like, why does it um, have to be voluntary? Because right. the problem when it's voluntary is you don't get the right people in the room. Mm-hmm. The key thing is then getting... Um, 
making sure that the training story is engaging and a genuine learning experience for the people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think setting out clear policies that include the people it sets out to support at each stage is really important. Mm-hmm. And celebrating black role models can be a, and be a positive ally in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if you're not sure of where to start, I mean, engage with a DNI consultancy like Involve mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit there, <laughs> and we can help support your objectives. Mm-hmm. Do you think that businesses need to? take employees opinions into account on the best ways to conduct it so would you recommend um, putting out surveys to employees to ask what is the most effective or engaging way that you could um, kind of interact with this training yeah I mean I I don't think it's about getting feedback well I mean you should always get feedback on training anyway Mm -hmm. right so you want to when someone's been through any kind of training or learning experience you want to get feedback to see Mm -hmm what was good what was bad how could it improve yeah um i mean the the the, i think the thing you're asking is when it's around diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. is the training relevant in context to what the challenges are in that business yeah and you only know that if you're trying to understand the context of your employees and the lived experience of your employees Mm -hmm. you should definitely be getting data from your employees themselves about their experiences and working in that business because mm-hmm. then, then hopefully it's going to bring out the issues and challenges and also the positives mm-hmm. about the culture and the environment so that you can then tailor the training um, to the organization to make sure it's fit for purpose and that it's going to have the most impact. Yeah, I mean, I think my next point kind of ties into that. We, we obviously spoke about and your research also spoke about the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter movement and how this has kind of shaped DNI over the last year. And something that I've definitely come across is that, um, like listening to different lived experiences from minority employees, is that some businesses have chosen to put the onus on BAME workers to come up with the policy or kind of the starting discussion points. And so I guess my question is, how can HR balance amplifying the voices of staff who are you know, likely to be victims of of racism in the workplace, whilst also not expecting them to do the majority of the work when it comes to improving DNI. Yeah, I mean, this is a great question because I think a lot of, uh, for instance, the black community are exhausted mm-hmm. with having to be the face or the person for the community in their business, particularly if there might might not be that critical mass mm-hmm. of that community in the business. So we have to be really mindful of the pressures we're putting on on them to do this on top of their very busy day jobs. Mm-hmm. So I think actually things like employee resource groups are a really great way to engage underrepresented talent and provide a platform to mm-hmm. enable them to share experiences. Right. So in using networks and moderating these internally, HR managers can then hear from staff and use this to help inform new policies and strategies. Mm-hmm. But employees should be consulted at each stage, not just the start. Mm-hmm. So as they're formulating the policies and going through it, check in with them again, sense check any changes or edits you're making, mm-hmm. like does it fit with what they need? Um, right. And I think there's a fine balance to be found, but employers need to remember that these policies and ways of working are to be implemented to support underrepresented individuals, not themselves. Right. So it's really then a balancing act between not putting all the pressure on, you know, um, people to be spokespersons of their particular community whilst also consulting them whilst creating policies to make sure that that policy is actually effective. Yeah. And also remember, diversity and inclusion is everyone's responsibility, not just the diverse peoples. Mm-hmm. 
right? Yeah. So we all know that the, the, from the statistics that the majority of leaders in positions of power and influence are straight white men. Mm-hmm. So they need to be on board as well. It's not all down to the black community that mm-hmm. might be further down the career ladder or the women's group. Like yeah. Everyone is responsible for diversity and inclusion. So we do need lots of allyship. As to mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I wanted to now move on to our next story. Um which I guess ties into that, it's about reduced hours and the growing levels of unemployment for BAME workers um, since the start of the pandemic. So research carried out by the TUC actually showed that um, BAME workers have been more likely to face reduced hours and higher rates of unemployment over the last year. Um, They were three times more likely than white workers to have lost working hours um, during the pandemic. And BAME workers were also twice as likely to say that they'd had to, they'd had to take on more than one job in the last 12 months than white workers. So obviously quite um, shocking statistics there. How can businesses ensure that they're being conscious about protecting minority workers from, especially from the negative effects of this pandemic? If you have any comments on the HR and Review podcast, would like to suggest a topic or speaker, or provide other feedback, you can contact us using the email podcast at hrreview.co.uk. We look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, it's a um, great question. Because um, I think the tackling unconscious bias takes time. Mm-hmm. But the first and most critical step in, in the process is to raise awareness. Mm-hmm. So encouraging teams to take tests to discover what their implicit biases might be mm-hmm. makes for a great introduction to staff-wide diversity training. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the problem with unconscious bias training is that generally when you think about it, it's seen as a compliance exercise or you get right. the eye roll mm-hmm. when you want people to go through it. Yeah. And um, it's, But it's, it's necessary because people need to understand what their biases are, mm-hmm. but they also need to understand how they can tackle them. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing that involved does really well. So we we our um, unconscious bias training is called conscious inclusion. Mm-hmm. They're even just changing the language to be more optimistic yeah. rather than unconscious bias. Um, we also help them identify what their biases are, but then also mm-hmm. give them the skills and tools to mitigate them once they leave the virtual room. Because mm-hmm. all our training is done virtually now, Monica. No one's doing in person yeah. training. I can imagine so, that that's been quite a big change. Yeah, it has. Um, but I think the I think just making sure that people are aware of those those biases are mm-hmm. really important. But they need the skills to tackle them. Um, and then there are like practical techniques you could have, like blind hiring techniques, for instance, mm-hmm. or ensuring that interview panels have got a diverse makeup to limit bias throughout the recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's just always making sure that your there's data points to check where the bias might be landing, so you can try and do something about it. Mm-hmm. So you've obviously mentioned there quite extensively unconscious bias. Um, one of the recommendations set out by the TUC was to introduce mandatory ethnicity pay gap reporting. So obviously businesses there are expected to publish an action plan as well as just reporting um, the figures and the disparities between different employees pay. Um, and it's most likely if it comes into effect, it's going to be quite similar to the gender pay gap reporting that's currently compulsory for businesses with over 250 employees. So I I just wondered, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that this would work well alongside unconscious bias training? Or are there any other systems do you think that can be introduced to support DNI in the workplace? 
Yeah, I, I mean, to be uh, ethnicity pay gap reporting is a campaign also that we ran a few years ago, mm-hmm. and we've got about fifteen companies to start to voluntarily voluntarily report it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a number of organisations that that have reported it, like ITN, Deloitte, PwC, EY, Bank of England, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and the great thing about the ethnicity pay gap reporting like the gender pay gap reporting mm-hmm. is that it kind of holds a mirror up to the organization right. so they can see where they are mm-hmm. and it's really important to make sure that people know there's a difference between ethnicity pay gap reporting mm-hmm. and equal pay right this isn't about equal pay mm-hmm. the, what the pay gap reporting what the pay gap shows be it ethnicity or gender is it effectively shows that there aren't enough um racially diverse and women who mm-hmm. sit in the most the higher paid roles in a business, which tend to be the more senior roles. Mm-hmm. So it's effectively trying to tackle representation mm-hmm. at the top. So I think the, the good thing about them is that it, it allows them to collect lots of data where the issues are, but then also getting them to put in some solutions mm-hmm. to try and tackle it. So right. I, I think it's really, really important. And other kind of systems I think are important are things around accountability. Mm-hmm. Like how are you holding your leaders accountable to drive diversity and inclusion? Mm-hmm. How can you link some of their diversity inclusion targets to their reward and their compensation? Mm-hmm. Um, what about coaching and right. mentoring or sponsorship programs even where rather than a mentor that shows you the door, you've got sponsors that open the door for talent. Mm-hmm. So they're proactively championing diverse talent within the business to get them to get ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be investing in returnships, um, and just being purposeful and proactive about recruitment. Mm. at all levels mm-hmm. to find talent um, at all levels externally to make sure that you're finding the most diverse talent pools mm. so again this kind of ties into what you were saying before about accountability and allyship from you know senior leaders and making almost making that trickle down throughout the business absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely and it starts from the top it really does Mm-hmm. So we really need that. That's why I quite like it when companies do link diversity and inclusion to reward mm-hmm. and pay. Yeah. So they'll have objectives where they'll earn less bonus if they're not hitting their diversity and inclusion targets and objectives. Mm-hmm. And targets, that doesn't mean just representation. That could mean engagement scores. Mm-hmm. Right. Are they a good manager? Right. What kind of 360 feedback are they getting from their team? Mm-hmm. I know tech is really hot on this, getting those kind of um, data points. Whether they actually act on it is another matter entirely, <laughs> but we know they collect those data points. But, you know, that that's all pretty important to drive real change. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that moves past, you know, just filling roles to hit certain diversity quotas. That means then that you're actually trying to, I guess, have data to actually see how much change this is affecting. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, Siki, my final question for you is that as restrictions are hopefully being lifted from the 19th of July, what are the imminent things that HR need to tackle first with DNI? What should be made an immediate priority when offices open up? Why not subscribe to the premium version of HR in Review? You'll get ad-free content, early and extra episodes and more. Even better, although it's the premium edition, it's absolutely free. Sign up at hrreview.co.uk slash podcast. Yeah, so this is a really interesting question with the whole returning to work or return to the office Mm -hmm. um, or hybrid working. Yeah. Um, 
because obviously there's a lot of companies now pushing for employees to come back into the office Mm -hmm. and seeing almost um, working remotely as like a perk Mm -hmm. and something that needs to be earned. I saw a really great post actually on LinkedIn today that went viral Mm -hmm. where a woman was complaining about the fact that remote working was seen as a perk. Right. It is a perk now, but at mm-hmm. the pandemic, it was seen as, as a necessity to keep the mm-hmm. businesses afloat. Yeah. So um, she just found it really stupid, her words, that it's now being seen as a perk rather than seen as like the way to do things, which mm-hmm. I kind of agree with, if I'm yeah. honest. So the thing about my business, we're all working remotely. We don't have any office real estate. Mm-hmm. Everyone is really happy working from home. Those mm-hmm. that want access to an office will get them like a WeWork pass. So they've mm-hmm. got somewhere go yeah um and then we're planning to meet monthly like mm-hmm. to do social things as a team because we don't want to be entirely remote mm-hmm. and some of the team also if they live geographically close to each other they'll go meet somewhere and work together for the day mm-hmm. but they choose where and when they want to work if I'm honest not right. not me I don't want to dictate it to because I'm I've got a second home by the sea in Bournemouth I'd happily spend the rest of my time here if I'm honest <laughs> rather than being in the barbican in the city mm-hmm. um, but I think so. So I think it's getting a sense of well, what do the employees want? Mm-hmm. What data are you collecting to figure out? Like, do people want to work remotely fully? Do they want to be hybrid? Do they want to be in the office? Um, are there specific roles that that can be fully remote or can they not? Collecting all those data points and just getting a sense of also how safe do employees feel coming into an office? Mm-hmm. So, what are yeah. the protocols and policies you have have in place, for instance, around wearing masks? and social distancing Mm -hmm. Um, I mean I did a pitch um, this week with the CEO and um, CHRO for a a search they want us to run Mm -hmm. and they're both sat in this big boardroom wearing their masks right and I was like that doesn't look very fun (laughs) (laughs) and they're a healthcare business Mm -hmm. but they have to wear a mask in the office and I'm like do you really want to sit in the office and wear a mask all day Mm -hmm. I wouldn't personally but you know um so getting a sense of what other people want to do I think um there needs to be a focus on mental health because mm-hmm. the effects of the pandemic are everlasting and yeah. change the way that we work forever. Mm-hmm. So getting a sense of how people are um, and making sure their workloads are okay because even the whole sense of return to work makes it sound like we haven't been working for the last 18 months. Mm. <laughs> and I know yeah. that everyone is working twice as hard, mm. which is why I was so offended by our Prime Minister's comments earlier in the year <laughs> about getting people back to it. We've had enough of a holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, is what he said mm-hmm. um and I think just always making sure sure that people's opinions are valued mm-hmm. I think genuinely I, I think there's more of a culture of trying to understand how how employees feel yeah engagement and I think actually with that hybrid working and remote working mm-hmm. there needs to be a focus on how do we engage talent when everyone is working remotely or there's more um more hybrid working Mm-hmm. So those that aren't in the office that are often showing their face that they're not losing out on promotion opportunities yeah. or um, projects because mm-hmm. they're not visible in the office. Right. And it's being like super mindful of your workforce mm-hmm. and trying to include everyone in that hybrid setting. I don't think everyone has the answer to that yet, mm-hmm. but that's definitely the kind of priorities or immediate challenges that HR have to face. Definitely. And I think, as you've mentioned, there's quite a few different things that they have to kind of come to grips with quite quickly so that employees don't miss out or, um, you know, that they maintain that sense of employee loyalty by giving, you know, the correct amount of flexibility or mental health provisions or just uh, just really getting to the root of how staff feel, especially coming back. Yeah, it's exactly. That's exactly it. 
Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Suki, for joining me on the show today. It was so great to talk to you about diversity and inclusion and, you know, all the key things that companies need to consider in order to really champion this. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Suki is CEO and founder of Involve, a global network and consultancy championing DNI in business. So you can check out some of the great work that they do there. Um, if you enjoyed this, we also have one final HR review webinar coming up, which is about how to create a more human centric HR function. And that's going live this Thursday, the 15th of July at 11am. As always, if you're interested in learning more about diversity and inclusion in the workplace or any other topic linked to HR, please, please head over to our website, hrreview.co.uk. Thanks again. Um, to Suki for joining us and our audience for listening. We hope to see you next time where where we will be continuing the discussion on the most relevant HR topics. See you then. The HR and Review podcast is brought to you by hrreview.co.uk. hrreview.co.uk is a website dedicated to human resources and related professionals. News items are posted daily together with analysis looking in-depth at topical HR issues. You can sign up for our range of specialist newsletters at hrreview.co.uk slash sign up and follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening.